Welcome to the Anti-Racism Leadership Institute podcast, where we ignite the sparks of change and inspire a world free of racism. This podcast is dedicated to highlighting the most cutting edge anti-racist research and education for the purpose of connecting practitioners to powerful research-based approaches to racial equity. I am your host, Dr. Tracy A. Benson, and today we invite you on a transformative journey as we delve into the efforts and triumphs of those dedicated to fostering racial equity within education. Hello, Dr. Smith. Thank you so much for being a guest on our podcast. It's very, I feel very honored and privileged to have you here today and to thank everyone for joining to listen in on our conversation. I met Dr. Smith, I think it was 2017, 18. He was on a panel on stage and I was an assistant professor sitting in the audience listening to uh, Dr. Smith talk about his research. And I was just amazed and enamored and really in awe of the type of research he did. And so after the re after the session was over, you know, I was, you know, again, assistant professor, I don't really understand this esteemed, uh, esteemed researcher, and very hoping just to get a moment with him. And he was just so gracious enough to find his way to me. And we started out uh, having a conversation. And since then, we've formed a uh, collegial relationship, a friendship around just being academics, but also around our area of research. And I really appreciate us keeping in contact for so long and having you on the podcast here today. Okay, well, thank you, Dr. Benson. And I first start by saying you're too gracious. Your sense of recall is perhaps slightly different to mine. I'm not sure that it will, I would say, an esteemed um, scholar, but I do recall the panel discussion and also subsequent discussions where you and I have been in similar spaces talking about our respective research. So I'm humbly appreciative to be here today and to be invited and to engage in conversation with you. I'm sharing more about my research, my work, but more importantly, how collectively we are changing and influencing the world of academia and in particular research to practice within the context of leadership. So thank Wonderful. You. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Deanna, purpose of our, purpose of our time together uh, today and for those who are listening in is to connect research that, you know, esteemed researchers do to practice and how it can inform practice to better serve our students across our country, in particular, our black and brown students. Um, that's the purpose of our organization and the work that we do and everyone who comes on our podcast. And so we'd like to start out with un folks understanding who you are. Of course, I have your bio from your current institution. I could read that, which I'm not going to. I want to hear you sort of talk about who you are, where you're from, how you got into education and what led you to the point where you are right now. So I want to give you the moment to, to introduce yourself. Okay, thank you. By way of introduction, there are multiple dimensions to who I am, and those multiple dimensions inform my research. So by first, my first and primary introduction is that my name is Philip A. Smith. I am the son of Hyacinth Smith and Alton Smith, Bo both born in Jamaica. I was born in England. I'm the middle of five siblings. And why that is an important introduction is because within those few words are layers of who I am, what brings me to the work, what makes sense, how I make sense of the world, and indeed how it informs my research. So that's the real introduction. And then the introduction for those used to more formal academic introductions and presentations. My name is Dr. Philip A. Smith. I'm an assistant professor in the Graduate School of Education in the Division 
of Educational Leadership, Administration and Policy at Fordham University in New York. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you so much for that introduction. I didn't know we had a connection in terms of I'm the middle of six. Uh, I'm number four of six. You know, you're the middle of five. So we understand the middle children, not syndrome, the gift of being a middle child, you know, amongst a lot of siblings. (laughs) So can you talk about, so for for a lot of us who are practitioners, so when I was a practitioner, I would always wonder, like, how how could I make the transition that if I wanted to slow down, spend some time becoming a researcher, what was your impetus for entering into the academic world? Because you were a practitioner back home, correct? Yes. Yes, thank you. So my professional background is raised, educated, and much of my professional practice was in the UK. So for many years professionally, I was within the field of education, leadership, administration. So the equivalent of what you may call district level leadership, but also city and statewide leadership and indeed national education leadership in the UK. And much of my work was around, put it, I'd go back a bit, Dr. Benson, the context of Traditionally, the education system in the UK was one of a national education system that was then decentralized at local levels. So much of my work was looking at national designated formulated policies and how do we interpret and implement those at local level and be that state, city or school level. And so much of that work and discussion was often about education policies, which at its heart was, although not explicitly stated, but at its heart was about informing and influencing the education experience of young people from marginalized communities and primarily marginalized in terms of social economic status or race and ethnic diversity. So, so that was very much the impetus of the policy And I would, you know, I was involved in some major initiatives there. But often what I found was, and this is partly the context of the UK, but I think education leadership more broadly, I was often the first or the only black man in that space. And so we'd be having conversations around policy about what is best for a group of our population and yet I was the only one in that room who had any visible resemblance with that population and so many of the the rationale the thought process through which we came with the decisions were very absent of the lived realities of those individuals and running parallel to that so that was my professional work Part of that, I also did an MBA. While studying my MBA, the purpose of doing the MBA was to better understand the leadership practices that we and support that we gave to leaders of like corporate cave, for want of a better. There are models there that we could learn to apply to the field of education leadership. So did the MBA and part of the MBA in the UK was slightly different to master's level degrees in the US is that we do a dissertation at the end. So that dissertation is similar in terms of focus and context as a doctoral dissertation, but not as long 
in, in the length. So I did a dissertation. So my focus and topic was looking at black male secondary school leaders in the UK. In doing that research, it came to light that there were only 10 black male secondary school leaders, wow. head teachers, we call them, in the UK, 10. And this was not that long ago. This was in early 20s, early 2000s. There were 10. And so I went on this endeavor to try and reach out to the 10. And I was able to interview six, maybe seven of the 10. And the other three was only because of timelines. I just wasn't able to connect to them at the same time. But one of the key things in doing that research was, one, when I first approached them, there was a bit of apprehension by this, this invitation because, one, my name is Philip Smith, a very English name. <laughs> Two, I was a senior-level education professional. And as I'd said to you, individuals in that space generally do not look like me. And third, RT was Warwick Business School, which is a very white elite institution in the UK. And so the email invitation didn't get a very favorable response from these individuals. And then one decided, I'll speak with him. He spoke, when I met with him, and this is all related to research, to practice, when I met with him, his first thing was, oh, you're black. Mm -hmm. Yes, I am. And then... Can I pause you there? Yes, because, please. you know, that is a very essential part of... There's so many words, so many meanings in that one phrase. Yes. And he sort of alluded to it in the description, right? My name is Philip Smith, a traditionally very, you know, could be associated with a, a, a person who was not a person of color and there was apprehension and that phrase, oh, you're black. Can you expand for those of us who are, for those who are listening in, can you expand on the, the significance of that phrase? Yes. And so connecting that phrase is why in my introduction, I told you a bit about my heritage, because what I've realized is that when engaging in work with people from who are from marginalized communities, the academic credentials are fine, but what's more important is who are you? Mm -hmm. and, and that was a moment, it's, oh, you're black. Because what, and I'll explain within that, he expanded that because he was aware that they were few in numbers, lots of people had approached, them, approached him to do research, mm -hmm. but was often research on him, never research with him. Mm -hmm. And so me being black, there was a hope that I would be coming from a different perspective, which indeed I very much was. And so black is was not just around racial phenotype identity, it was also about um, the way I was going to approach the work engage with him as a participant, et cetera, et cetera. So it was not just black as a racial group or a color. It's about how what one identifies. Mm -hmm. And, and so, before before we get to like how you try to, I want to go back to one point so we don't we don't we don't forget it because you said something important in the beginning in terms of 
this identity and identity identity sort of recognition of one another, right? Because I am also a black male and a black male educator and in predominantly white spaces, right? And with very few faces who look like me. And for folks who don't understand, who don't share this identity, have never had the experience of being one or one one in the only one in a space. And you said in your early introduction, in a space where you're making decision among among student communities who look like you, but yet you're the only one that represents this community you know, who looks like them. And what are those implications when you're in those moments right. for you as one one and the only who have the, the sort of the, the identity? Okay, I'll give you, I think what's important is to wherever possible, be your authentic self because it's very easy or easier. It's not easy. It's easy. It appears to be easier to just conform and go with the crowd. And particularly when we think about leadership, then what you have is this group mindset. And then you become part of that group mindset, which is actually not making the best decisions for the constituents you, you profess to serve. And so I'll give two specific examples um, of my experiences while in the UK. There was at one point a policy which was trying to encourage students from race marginalized backgrounds to improve their attendance at schools. And, you know, there were issues, well, you know, kids come late, they don't, or they don't attend school, etc. And we, th there was a discussion around a policy to introduce breakfast clubs, you know, to, and I know that breakfast clubs have become more popular in recent years, but this was, you know, a good 15, almost maybe 20 years ago, introduced breakfast clubs as an incentive to get the kids to come to school earlier. And everyone thought it was a great idea. I said, I don't feel this is a good idea. Why not, Philip? Because the introduction of a breakfast club implies to the parents that they are not feeding their child. Mm -hmm. And so you are sending their child, you're providing breakfast for their kids. Mm -hmm. And this was directed within a what's called a local borough or a, a school district that was serving a, major a majority parent family who were of Caribbean descent. Mm -hmm. And what I know intuitively as someone who is also of Caribbean heritage, the very notion that a parent cannot feed their child and that you go to someone else is so alien it is it's so taboo. You whether you can or cannot afford mm -hmm. to make that public, it is the height of embarrassment. Mm -hmm. So you go and, and you know everyone said I was wrong. I didn't understand what I was talking about. So they launched. They invested a lot of money in this initiative, and this is like district wide. Mm -hmm. I doubt if there were five kids across a hundred schools that mm -hmm. attended the breakfast club. That was num so that's the number one where your identity makes valid contributions to leadership, to work, to policy formulation that may or may not be received quite well. 
The second example is, I guess, a bit more recent. I start, well, still in the UK. I started as a senior level director in a local authority, again, what you would call a school district. Mm -hmm. And they shared that they had lots of issues with um, about behavior with young kids, in particular young black boys. And I asked, so what are the issues? And they explained it was the young black boys' hairstyles meant that they didn't have the right attitude to learning. Wow. Wow. And so they were suspended or excluded from school, from coming to school with inappropriate hairstyles. And I thought, okay, that's interesting. And so you, you know me very well. The audience may not, but I have locks which are way to my back. At the time of going for that interview, for that job, I was toying with the idea, do I want a locks, do I want a locks, etc. And that was one of the deciding factors. I'm going to locks. I used to just twist my hair and comb it out as I wanted. And I said, no, I'm going to locks. And so I remember going to this meeting with, with my hair all twisted and said, you know, we had discussions around inappropriate hairstyles and attitude to behavior. Are you referring to hairstyles similar to mine? <laughs> wow. <laughs> and would you say that my hairstyle impacts my ability to learn? That is bold. Okay. Yes. Well, I want, what, was the, what was the reaction? What was the aftermath? <laughs> the reaction was everyone had, they had never thought about that because again, you know, we're, we're in the context where school uniforms and formal uniforms are a norm in British schools, mm-hmm. you know, and so part of a school uniform would not just be wear a blazer, tie, shirt, and pants would also be about your hair, the length of your hair, etc. But those policies were racially biased and did not actually have anything to do with one's ability to learn. And so it was subsequently changed. That is, you know, those two examples really exemplify sort of the anti-Black deficit attitudes around, we assume that these populations don't feed their children in the morning, right? And so if we give them breakfast, I'll give it, incentivize them to come to school and actually eat, right? Without Mm -hmm. asking the parents or the community how they feel about it, we assume we know better. We don't share the identity. And then you, someone who actually is attached to the community, has the identity, understands the context, is seen as someone who who is not credible in the space because you don't share the identity of those making a decision. And then we also share the, you know, I started wearing locks as a principal. And so myself as well, I have locks down to my back. And it was purposeful in terms of the attack on hairstyles that were was in the the, the early 2008-2009 on hairstyles. I decided to continue to grow my locks into administration because this is an acceptable hairstyle and doesn't impede my intellectual ability. So we share that as well. So can you tell us about what you currently are researching and uh, why? why? Why do you research? Why is it so important? So I am reached research. My area of research is black male school principal leadership. So, and I, I'll say principal, it's actually either public school principals or independent schools, heads of schools. So looking at black male school leadership. And why am I looking at that? For all the reasons I've just shared. 
for all um, my own lived experiences, the initial work with um, the 10 blackhead teachers in the UK and their response to me and interaction, etc. And then to, to take that on a more national and indeed international scale. And so I look at specifically how race and identity informs how black men lead, but also how race and identity informs how others perceive they lead. Because often they are not the same, you know? Yeah, so I'll, I'll say that and pause. How I lead, but also how others perceive I lead because of my race and gender identity. God. So what are you finding? What What is of interest? What are you finding here that is of, of, of interest and needs to be understood? So what, I, what I'm finding, and I'm still exploring this, is in what I commonly term the essence of leading while Black and male. Because what I'm also looking at is not necessarily your professional practice, but more about who you are as an individual and how that informs your professional practice. Okay. And so answers of what it means to be leading while black and male. And they are, and they vary to, ver to various degrees amongst individuals. One is about childhood experiences. So what I term growing up as a black boy. So what were your childhood experiences of school, of education, and how would they now informed your leadership? And nine times out of 10, which perhaps the individuals like you and I may not come as a surprise, most of those men in school leadership roles are part of their childhood experience was that their school day experience was less than positive. Mm. And what they've said at some point during their either childhood or adulthood is, I want to become an educator, a leader, so that no one experiences what I experienced. Mm -hmm. so, so that's number one, their childhood experiences. The second piece is what I term leadership as ministry. And that is that their leadership is not just a job, it's a vocation, it's a calling. So what brings them to education, what brings them to leadership work, to headship, principalship, etc., is that there is something much bigger than them. And I say leadership as ministry because there is the essence of a spiritual dimension to their work. And when I say spiritual, I'm not talking about religious. You know, there's, there's a distinction. There's a spiritual calling that this work and this thing that I'm doing is bigger than me and that's why I'm engaged in this thing mm -hmm. as opposed to well you know and, and and no shade on anyone for their career path but other than rather than I did a good degree didn't quite get the job that I wanted so now I'll go into teaching and then I go through the ranks and I become a school principal for them, there is something that, even if that was their entree into education, what takes them to leadership is more than just the day job. That there's a, there's a spiritual calling. And in the third aspect of leading while black and male is how you, what I call 
when a black man is in the principal's office. So how black male leaders navigate racialized spaces as black men. Because what one has to understand is that the teaching profession in the US and indeed in most Western contexts is predominantly white female. And so you then have a leader who is a black male leader leading a predominantly white female workforce. And layered within that are lots of social stereotypes, negative stereotypes, dimensions, etc., about the relationship between black white colleagues, between men, women, between black men, white women, all of that adds another layer of their leadership work. How do they navigate those spaces? Because one of the things that related to that, there are lots of initiatives and incentives to diversify our school workforce, diversify our school leadership workforce. So we increase the numbers, but what we've been very poor at is retaining. So there's a bit of what I call a revolving door syndrome. We get more in, but as one comes in and one another black man leaves. So there is how do we, how do black men navigate those spaces? How do we understand it so that we as researchers, scholars, trainers can support them to stay in, in that space? Yeah, let me ask you about that, too, because this is very popular. This is all the rate right now in a lot of the organizations we work at. We want more leadership of color. We want more teachers of color, as if there hasn't been a history and legacy of, of Black educators in our country that was effectively cut off after the Brown versus Board decision, and these educators were pushed out of education. So it's not a phenomenon that happened on accident. It was very purposeful. But now the wave is we want to do DEI work, which is diversify. And like you say, you know, they bring leaders of color in, and then we often offer this sort of raceless leadership training that doesn't address the very real dynamics of being a person of color, especially a black, especially a black male leading white women. And yes. so right there, what would you suggest to individuals who are listening around how we begin to trouble the waters around our lack of understanding that there needs to be a different level of professional development for everyone when it comes to this dynamic of maybe this is the first time these white women ever had a black male leader, right? Yeah. What then needs to happen in during the time in which the leader is there to address these dynamics that are inevitably on the surface? I think, and thank you for the question. That's a, a key question. I think fundamentally all training, irrespective of who we're training and professional development, must center who am I? must center unpacking who am I, what is, who is, your, what is your identity, how are you defining your identity, how does your identity inform what you do, whereas what tends to happen, you know, the term you used was lots of race-less training. I would say it's actually race-evasive because mm. we, we, we know that race exists, we know that race matters, but we... Not only, you know, we used to politely say colorblind, but it's, it's beyond that. We intentionally are evasive about looking at race in, in the context of our work. So I think that's number one. 
Number two, a piece that I would say deems any good professional development is that we don't train individuals, we engage with individuals. And so say, for example, we're we want to teach something around conflict management, conflict resolution. We don't just come and say, here's the scripts and this is what you need to do. And person A speaks to person B and if it doesn't work, they get person C as an intermediary. What we do is we say, how do you as an individual, A, experience conflict mm-hmm. and B, what are the strategies that you use? How successful are they? And so those very simple questions are, as a trainer, as someone involved in PD, you don't walk in with a preconceived idea and solution. You are very intentional to invite others to share their experiences, because I fundamentally believe expertise is often in the room. And what you as your role as a trainer is to just bring that to the surface so that when you leave the organization can continue in that work. Understand, so, understand. Maybe I've answered or maybe I haven't answered. I'm not sure. You prevented you presented a framework for right, thinking yes. about it. Right. Because yes. it's often, I mean, in what I know in our work, working with you know hundreds of leaders and superintendents and principals that when it breaks down to essential interaction, where I know when I'm coaching another black leader that this is happening because you are a black male. Yes. Right. You're not crazy. You're not seeing things that aren't there. It's because. And then where do you go from there? Can we be preventative? Can we be proactive before these situations develop? And we know there's a racialized term. But then, as you say, that at that point, when there's a dilemma, people become really race evasive. Right. We're not going to put race on the table because that is scary. And we all see what's happening, but we're not going to talk about it. Mm -hmm. So you talked about the three pillars of uh, these these black male leaders did not more often than not, did not have the most positive experience in schools. There's yeah. a spiritual calling. There's an aspect of a black man in being a black man in the office. And what, yes. what's the fourth one? The fourth and the pillar? fourth one is as part of being a leader is, is safeguarding the village and community. That their work of a school leader is primarily around looking at the social, emotional, and academic well-being of the students they serve but also by extension, being part of the community. So the the whole concept that the school in which I lead is a community school and how how do I engage and support and be there for the community because that young person is a member of a community or a village. So that's the fourth piece. Wonderful. And so in your research, I, of course, as, as academics, our research often, especially if you're we're on the tenure track, goes in journals here, journals there. We go to conferences where practitioners typically aren't ours, other academics, right? And yes. the purpose of our work together, you know, in, in this podcast is to bridge that very large gap <laughs> that we continue to have in education. And a lot of leaders say, I want to make research-based decisions, but they don't read the academic research and nor can they translate that. And I'm guilty of this as a leader as well. You know, I cherry picked some research that I thought I understood, but really didn't understand and for my practice. And so from you as a researcher, the research you've done in terms of the research that you're going to do moving forward, ideally, you know, 10 years from now, when your body of research is well-renowned in the highest ranked journals, how would you want practitioners in the field to use your research to inform practice? Right. Okay. Again, thank you for um, very thought-provoking questions. 
What I would say is so a tension that I have is that the requirements or one may say incentives for a tenure track tenured role versus the incentives to be community engaged. And so there's a balance. So for me, there's a balance. Yes, I do research conference. I do, you know, research proposals, strive for publications, present at conferences. But I also try to be part of community conversations and particularly working with black male leaders, educate and aspiring leaders in spaces. You know, I create spaces for them. And so those individuals may or may not, most unlikely will read my academic work. However, they are part of an ongoing dialogue, etc., of about that work because it's the work is about and for them. And what I try to do is do use those conversations, those meetings, those PD, the term I commonly use is gatherings of places to capture, for one for a better term, data that one can use to inform the world of academia. But it's to inform the world of academia that this is based on practice, not on theoretical theories or research or conceptual frameworks. This is out of the from the voices of lived experiences of those black men who we say that we're trying to understand and importantly recruit to our profession, but retain. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. So it's glad to see that you're still connected to the community, doing community work based on your research and your dedication to the field. And I'm going to push you one step further because it's going to happen. Someone's going to say, I'm doing the work that Dr. Smith, do you know him? He's at this prestigious university. This is his research. I'm doing his work in practice in a school district if they someone were to say i am doing the work that you profess what would they be doing so if they were doing the work that i that i say that i'm doing they would be creating spaces actively creating spaces that are let me backtrack so i use a term which is not my term we talk about mentoring but I think by connection or extension, there is friend touring. Mm-hmm. So mentoring that is about friendships, about networks. That So are you creating friend touring experiences for the black male leaders and aspiring leaders in your space? Or are you creating mentoring professional development opportunities that are about, you know, I'm the expert i'm going to help you develop this skill that that's a very because that's typically what happens you know i'm going to help you with a skill deficit that you may have but what i actually need and could benefit from is a networker space where i can have a friend right so are you creating that so so that you know there's that and part of creating that space is we, you know, there are lots of different strategies about how one creates welcoming, brave spaces. And I'm very intentional about that. So I'll give you some practical things. 
when I'm creating a, a gathering for black male leaders to wherever possible, all the facilitators within that space are primarily of the same racial background as those who are serving, and if possible, also the same gender. But I've also very much recognized a core member of a group and colleague that I work with is Black female. And without her, I don't believe the work would be as successful. So it's recognizing the role of both men and women in the space of supporting Black male leaders. So there's that. Things are I, I very much culturally sensitive, you know, and culturally appropriate. If there's a gathering, if there's a whole day gathering, you know, going back to the, my comment about the breakfast club, there's always a, a morning refreshment, always. There's, if it's a whole day event, there's a lunch that is a quality lunch because often what happens for black men in leadership roles, they don't feel valued. Mm. So h- how do I show you that I'm valued? You know, And then there are things, you know, some very minor practical things that I do. So every event will have proper PD, you know, proper folders, name tents. These little things just show you that I knew you were coming and I thought about you. Mm-hmm. So these are all things that are traditionally don't happen and they're very straightforward. They simply don't happen. And, you know, connecting some of the dots, I explained to you that I was previously did an MBA when I did the MBA, it was at a very prestigious institution. All you ever had to do for any meeting was just turn up. You know, <laughs> there would be a book, all the books you need, a pen, and because they valued you. So how we val- how we create in a space that shows that we value you, and part of that value valuing is in the way the dialogue um, goes. So yes, you have core agenda this is what we want but be flexible to go wherever your participants want to go because it's a you're creating a space for them and more often than not because you know black men in particular in education leadership roles have not benefited from these spaces a one hit wonder is rarely going to accomplish anything so what have you built in to sustain to return to continue the dialogue etc if your expectation is well we'll do a pd session next week thursday problem solved then you're quite naive in your very thing Uh, and what's the follow-up you know coaching mentoring is essential but what does the individual want from that experience? Not what I think they want. What do they want? And often they may not express that in an open space, what their needs are. Mm-hmm. So how, yeah. 
Wonderful. Wonderful. No, this is, I mean, I really appreciate your advice, right? It's, it's something that we often don't think because we're so transactional in our approach, right? Mentorship, friendship. Mentorship is more transactional. I'm the expert. I want to impart upon you and help you reach where I think you should go. And I like the term friendship because that draws, that's sort of a draw in. Like we have a, a sort of a cooperative environment where we're sharing with one another. And when we show up to spaces that I'm required to be at, you know, value that I'm here. I thought about you. I value you as a leader, right? And I want to create a space that's welcoming, not just welcoming for you, but welcoming in, term, in terms of like, you know, folders and, and agendas, but also a space where you feel valued and that your knowledge is valued in this space. And I don't have stuff just to impart upon you. Great, great advice for those of us who are seeking to recruit and retain leaders of color, especially black male leaders. So where folk, where can folks follow your work? Like, where can they find you, Dr. Smith? Like if folks are, wh when they're intrigued by yeah. all of this great, this just like I was at UCA so many years ago, yes. where can they read more, find more, learn more about the work you do? I think that the easiest way is to look, if you look me up under the Fordham Graduate School of Education website, you will see a, a link to my bio and in that bio, it will tell you recent publications, et cetera. But then that is very much focusing on the academic scholarly work that I do. I would say I do engage in series of community conference discussion spaces. And maybe after this, you can share my contact information with your listeners and they and just email me. And that's the best way to find out. Well, I'm, I'm not really a social media space individual, so you can't follow me on social media. But, yes. <laughs> I mean, don't, you don't I, have a TikTok? <laughs> I don't. I, I mean, I have, you know, again, sidebar, because of family pressure, I have most of these accounts, but <sighs> I don't use any of them. <laughs> of course, yeah. So that's something I need, you know, because everyone says, you need to be on this, and particularly my nieces. Oh, uncle, why, why aren't you on Facebook? Why aren't you? Yeah, so I have the account which they created for me, but I. <laughs> That's okay. That's all right. You know, if folks want to find you, they got to make genuine effort and contact. Yes. And yes. not just Twitter or, or TikTok. I yeah. think there's value in that. Thank yeah. you so much for being a guest on our podcast, Dr. Smith. I, again, I appreciate your perspective. I learned a lot today. I know that those who are listening to this podcast will as well. I appreciate you. And thank you so much for being our guest today. No, and thank you again. Thanks for the invitation and continued success in your work. Thank you. All much. of which is much needed. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Anti-Racism Leadership Institute podcast. Remember, the fight against racism starts with each and every one of us. Together, we can create inclusive environments in our schools that celebrate diversity and empower all students. For more information, visit our website at antiracisminstitute.com and subscribe to our channel. Join us next time as we continue to shine a light on the champions of change. Stay inspired, committed, and let's make a difference together.